there's a, 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 a habitual neuro pathway to the hit, but there's, you know, to the, to the, to, you know, to the parts per millionth of caffeine level, but there's also something about our sense of self as we are aware, like, oh, I'm going to have a coffee and then this, 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 this. So being able to like have a completely different awareness of pace and what's it going to take for, you know, a pot of green tea and, you know, uh, yeah, you know, uh, over the last, over the last 30 years, you know, I was luckily never really dependent on one thing though. I enjoyed coffee and I always had tea and, you know, when marijuana was illegal, it was like, Whoa, this is such a cultural thing. And now that that has shifted into, oh, yeah, there's longstanding pharmacological uses going back hundreds and hundreds of years. It's what what do we want to feel? I mean, that's like alcohol, you know, five, six years of not drinking. You're like, wow, that was a lot of time spent. I mean, time, money. Well, well I did, the time is the currency in which, you know, longevity whoa longevity and uh what kind of equilibrium like if if you if you have those like two three hours of hangover just to not understand you know what your what your routine has been modified to experience i but again it's it's about you know the custom you know the the pirate mind station <laughs> it's the what is your what is your chosen outlook? And then just sort of like I know people who drink and that's part of their acceptance. And it's like, wow, I could never do that. But their worldview is one that the hangover is part of it. What did Frank Sinatra say? I can't believe, you know, people who don't drink when they wake up in the morning, that's the best they're going to feel all day. And I'm like, yeah, that yeah, you're right. And it keeps on getting weirder and more prismatic. It doesn't narrow and narrow and narrow into like I can't speak words. The Sinatra code is really interesting because he's had two very distinct choices. This is either the best you're going to feel all day or the worst you're going to feel all day. Right. And, and and you know, the last 20 years of you know, what we think of the theory behind what education provides and the experience of understanding sometimes you're moving, you're moving quickly, you're growing, you're expanding, you're increasing, but you're coming to a cliff and you can either turn right or you turn left. But if you compromise to just go half right, half left, you're just left with, you know, the fall realizing you can pick one. And some people can say like all of those hours became my new electric train set hobby or my new, like all of these things. And then it's not that, I mean, I'm heavily invested in the evening economies. Like, and just because we started out kind of in the holistic evening economies. DC punk rock had a lot of all age vegetarian straight edge, right? That's where that's literally where that comes from. And that's and that's the extreme left. But there were just people who were, you know, dealing with the DC homeless population and, and you know, seeing these cumulative you know, these just troughs of understanding like you know, you you can't fill it up. There is, there's, there's going to be no peak on, you know, l learning or healthcare or the kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, criminal justice reform that we've really been looking at since, you know, 25 years ago, we were at this three strikes, you're out, tough on crime, you know. Super predators. They, they put, they put Arthur Lee of love in jail for marijuana, like the madness. And it's, it's, it's not revisionist, but I, I feel like we're, 
you know, we're moving into a time where... Kurt, it's not revisionist because they haven't expunged all of those records yet. Uh, you know, as long as there are still people in prison for marijuana. years that's later, you know, that's the, that's the rallying cry. And, you know, sort of like how tech has rewarded boldly irresponsible early adopters and first, you know, like the beta club, you know, I think back, you know, to making, you know, records that we're, you know, very suspicious of tech, not suspicious. That's not the word. Very suspicious of tech in its commodity, in its lowest common denominator, sort of a race to the bottom of how are we going to get people really hooked on in 1995 AOL. In 1997, you want this book? Have you tried Amazon? You know, when we got to like 1999, 2000 and PayPal, it was like, who are these players? Who are these players going into these numbers? But it was after uh, September the 11th in 2001 that these Ideas sort of got frozen, and I'm not going to talk about politics, but I think so much of what we're experiencing are people who just kind of made out like bandits, not because they had the best model or the best. They literally could people, you know, it's like starting a company in Europe. Even if you had a great idea in Germany or in France, the likelihood that you are going to get merged into the big is almost guaranteed. And at the end of the day, I don't think I don't think the idea of selling books on the internet is necessarily a great innovation, and it's probably one that a lot of people had. Yeah. Timing is a huge factor. I mean, you're in the music business, so you probably yeah. know that better than anybody. Oh yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's both patience and the ability to put everything into that one cubic centimeter of opportunity. Like you have to be both incredibly flexible and patient, but at the same time, able to work and motivate others to a level of real strength, not jagged strength, though jagged people, as we saw, can accomplish great things. It's just, they don't last like, not even within a career, like they get like a third of a career. Are there any instances that you can really point to in the long history of the lilies where you were really in the right place at the right time? No, we always, no. I, and I, and I, and we were, you know, we remained independent and, you know, one record, one term, you know, very, very small as we were developing. I mean, I was, you know, I was 19 when I put out the first seven inch. So by the time I had literally learned what people doing the horrible, horrible act of record making are really going to do. And I mean, sausage, I mean, law, this is, this is all of it. Because what you are, I mean, really, it's almost like you're creating a map of a social survival construct of a, you know, like almost like a religion, because the goal is for people to not only sing along, but to come back and sing again. And in the purest sense, our ability and desire to make our own songs most bands that succeeded had a repertoire of Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and Beatles and Stones that they could instantly switch gears. And if nobody liked what they were doing, oh, that's not, you don't like that? How about playing with fire? Crowd pleasers. Well, winning, unlocking the audience. And we, because on... On the outset, it was two amazingly talented, you know, engineers, multi-instrumentalists, three people from every band in DC you'd want to make a record with in four days. And that first 
album had the guitar player of, you know, Black Tambourine and Velocity Girl, the drummer from the Atomics and Pool, and uh, the bass player from the Ropers, which in, you know, a little indie sphere, in some, you know, you know, you got 12 bands, but they're made up of like six different people. I can see Right Place in the Right Time in two ways, not being sort of like exactly what you need to be where you need to be. But first, firstly, coming up in D.C. at the time you did that, there was just so much music being made. You know, you talked about in Discord. 10 mile by 10 mile. Everybody knows everybody. D.C., Silver Spring, and like all Annapolis, all these cities. Right place at the right time as far as like being really fruitful people going out to shows. Now, now maybe being a little bit out of frequency in that Black Tambourine and a handful of other bands that were really doing something similar. The other place that at least potentially could have been the right place at the right time was obviously had already been a band for a while and had been releasing music for a while. You were around for that great major label record feeding frenzy of the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, in 1992 and 1993 was watching the rise of, and I don't want to say any of the brilliant presidents and heads of A&R. I, you know, I, I did theater. I read a lot of Sherlock Holmes and Shakespeare as a child. And you know, the ingredients of tragedy, when you see the ingredients of tragedy being thrown in, and I loved the idea that something like Sonic Youth could come onto a label uh, like, you know, Eagles manager, David Geffen Company, DGC. And if they would have released a song like Schizophrenia, I would have been like, we've done it. But they did. And I'm not telling a story that they didn't accomplish amazing things. But you're talking about tamping things down for wider appeal. And... And streamlining what makes these beautiful, long tail, exotic, global efforts into, uh, you know, 12 word talking points and, you know, very, very, I mean, it's all about brevity and the, the sort of understanding from 1951, like rocket 88 to like, 1958, 59, Ray Charles, and I mean, Chuck Berry O'Carroll, right into the 60s. And what we learned on a technological level, on an industry level, like what managers and what business models were going to create the most culture within an artistic culture, what I was seeing in some of the, what were then called alternative bands, formerly college rock, then in somehow 93, 4, H&M or HMV and all of the chain stores that were left had sections called alternative. And I think in 1994, the Grammy went for alternative record was Dave Matthews Band, uh, Under the Table in in Dreaming. Um, they're, they're from the area and all grew up with people from the area. So they're a very, you know, common currency in Virginia, but in the world, they're this juggernaut of accomplishment. And I feel that they were, they were much more closely aligned to what the industry wanted that bands like Nirvana and, uh, even when Interscope signed Helmet, I'm like, have you heard Band of Susans or Helmet? Like, do you know what you're going to get? And obviously, because, you know, from the ages of 17 to the ages of 21, you know, I listened to Nurse with Wound and went to David Sylvian concerts at like, you know, theaters. And I was, you know, skinny puppy, you know, dig it was more in alignment with my messaging system than what this crop of you're not talking aesthetically necessarily you're talking philosophically ideologically i would rather have someone it's like so miserable like david sylvian just torture himself rather than attempt to transform it into an energy it you know it's not it's you know it's this you can either 
you can either take it on within yourself and make something that is that in conflict, or you can put it out in the world and you can create that conflict out there. And I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, I mean, really it's, you're just going to keep ratcheting and ratcheting. It's going to get tighter and tighter and tighter and something's going to pop. So from the first 1992, then recording again in 1993, and then again in 1994, it was, you know, do what you love, but do it in a way that is meant to do its job, which is to create something like, yeah, I would, I would much rather have something Pisces, you know, the monkey song, what am I doing hanging around? And, or, you know, Fearless by Pink Floyd or anything off the Talk Talk records, anything by Japan. Like, I would rather die the most pretentious, like climbing, just get, get me up there rather than try to relax into like, yeah, but, you know, we're all a little student. You know, it's like you can be pretentious or you can be student. And I think, you know, what, yeah, became like, and I love the idea of slack and slacking off and J.R. Bob Dobbs. And, you know, Devo is my first as a nine-year-old, like this is, this says something about my life. But I feel that there was a level of an awareness lyrically of the incantation they were putting out into these 20,000 people. I don't think a lot of artists in the 90s had that literary savvy and they were not working the spell. I mean, the compositional spell. Maybe their intentions were right. You know, is, is it the Simpsons where they have the fake Lollapalooza and Homer's in the hat and the two kids go, Making teenagers depressed. Yeah, like shooting fish in a barrel. It's it's true. Like, and that they're looking back not very far, you know, three, four years really after the the dive into the emotional currency, not their dive within. They're like, okay, dear diary, what went wrong today? Oh, there's the title. And and I get it, you know, it's very personal, but the, the, the timing for me, I mean, the timing for me was when I had sort of figured out like kind of what I truly felt comfortable with. I had learned enough to do it simply and we made Better Can't Make Your Life Better for a beautiful little English label called Shea Trading who had done all of this amazing work. And we were thinking another small, you know, five, six like-minded people, we're going to do it in America. And within three months, it turned out that Shea Trading had a first right to refusal deal with Seymour Stein's Sire Records East West Electra. And I saw this teeny tiny record go and they built a half million dollar office staffed it with a million dollars worth of salaried people and expected this like weird urban multicultural art prank to what? And ironically that John Hager, Sir John Hagerty's company had been doing these Levi's ads. They had, got Roman Coppola to direct an ad for non-Levi's, for white tabs, the corduroys, the, the things. And so we just went from basically saying, okay, a friend working at a post-production company wanted us to take a licensing job for Calvin Klein making a non-binary fragrance, a unisex fragrance. Now, if it was a wonderful fragrance for anyone, I would have been, oh, this is cool. And I'm like, whoa, this is really weird. But the the like, hey, why don't you associate with these products that people are not going to understand? And that's what I'm saying. The timing, we were just about a little ahead of the curve over and over and over again. And saying 
saying no to people who directly want to extend extend usage of the copyright. They're like, you're the you're the writer. Here's the sound recording. Like, let's do business. And in the end of the day, you know, you are paying rents and mortgages. You're paying for, you know, healthcare, you know, 1996. And, you know, I'm walking around Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, you know, it's like, Rivers, what are you doing in Cambridge? It's like, I'm going to Harvard. I'm like, what did you do wrong? He's like, oh, you know, no, I mean, in a good way, but like, what went wrong? Why are you, I mean, obviously what went right, but you have it. Why do you, and that was the thing. Because you've seen people go through that, I assume. Like you've seen people like, and and you assume when you see somebody who has hit the heights that they hit, that Weezer hit. The heights. To see them off of tour, something must have gone terribly wrong. Well, you know, it was one of those Everything that hit, hit on accident. Everything was either, what do they say? They either say, throw shit against the wall and see what sticks. Or if you're in polite company, throw spaghetti against the wall. And and there was so much talent. There was so much training. And there was so much brilliant production and it just went like nobody, nobody realized like these, you know, warp record dance club private event rave nerds were going to create a reality first. I mean, the DNA Tom's Diner uh, remix, the MP3 into internet, into like Autecker with their primitive. It's the most incredible. And here we are, you know, going back in our wondrous, you know, Mozart's piano concerto number 21. You know, I'm doing song sung blue and here's window liquor. Did you feel like a relic when all these like EDM bands come along and make this really sort of weird? Honestly, having started, you know, really in electronic music, I was I was much more comfortable um, like early primitive sampling, two second delays, you know, TR-909, that was your arsenal. Like that you had a big muff was to just make your organ do something horrible, but switching it, you know, at 17, hearing isn't anything and isn't anything by My Bloody Valentine representing everything righteous and holy about not only you're living all over me by dinosaur junior, which is a record that everybody listened. Everybody who was anybody listened to constantly. They had listened to, you know, sister also on SST records. And they had listened to, you know, I want to say who's Now for me in high school, there were, there were a few shows on the East Coast with Jesus and Mary Chain were supporting this Darklands record and their opening band was Opal. And I saw two of the shows on that tour. And apparently the next night, Kendra Smith walks out, gone forever. That's the end. And it's like, and that record, Happy Nightmare Baby, also on SST. And everyone at SST was like, fuck those guys. Who cares about that? What they didn't realize is these were the only people who really looked at taking the incantation to the edge, literally attempting to give this audience a chance to vibe back. And I think the Mazzy Star stuff is incredible, but there was something like really reality bending about the Happy Nightmare Baby record that when you listen to Isn't Anything was there. I mean, that's what I'm saying. All of this stuff on a label that was based to put out Black Flag records. How are they doing this? Because they're not about putting it. Black Flag was just one of their, you know, this is my baby. But when I see it, I see it in this technological, sociological, like we're advancing. You see the Opal stuff as being a sort of a logical next step from a lot of the really spiritual stuff that was happening in the 60s and 70s, for example. 
in, in like a Judy Sill, like a black magic, but I'm not saying because I don't. Judy Sill, you know, a singer songwriter, but like there, there were people like conjuring spirits on stage. For sure. No, absolutely. And I think they were both aware, you know, because of, you know, everything from Richard Nixon to the events of Reagan's election to the words coming out of Donald Rumsfeld's mouth. Everyone saw, they're like, this is a reality distortion field. This is not boots on the ground fact. This is what they would like to create. And that's okay, but we can do the same. And so that, it, I mean, yeah, luckily enough, when you're, all your ideas are punching up, you can't, you know, you can't cancel a freedom fighter. I mean, I guess you technically could, but the opponent is a military industrial complex, but people are not going to root for the military industrial complex because the difference in my experience is these good, unbelievably talented engineers, machinists, like, you know, wizards of our age can't do their own taxes or balance their checkbooks, get jobs for people who can. And after the subprime mortgage collapse of 2008, all of these tech whiz, they were out of jobs. They were scooped up. And within two years, the tech world was locked and loaded with hollow points. I mean, the the ammunition you did not want to put into the faces of unsuspecting, unhygienic people who have no idea what their cyber hygiene must be, must be. We had already seen Stuxnet. We had already let the genie out of the bottle. I'm like, oh, that's going to be bad. In your estimation, is technology a an opportunity for the powers to be to take the culture back from the counterculture? I absolutely believe that an extension of those conservative ideals, the ideas of making money, the loan it took to make a record like Nevermind, even though it did an incredible things that it was... And, and it happened. The, the reaction may have been organic. The response was militaristic and mechanized and like every angle of getting units to the store. I mean, I think, I mean, that's when people began referring to records as units. To be clear, are you saying that, that Nevermind was an op? No, no, no. I am saying because... People feeling that there is this illusion of control out there rather than organizations that can adapt rather than going half left, half right and over the cliff. They're like, wait a minute, food goes right. And they turn and they can turn a battleship fully loaded, fully stocked. And that's the way they're going. They are that adaptive. And I think technology, as it comes back and forth, is a very harsh mistress because it, this illusion that ease and efficiency is happening when really you're just doing more and more of one thing saying, wow, that one thing is getting a lot faster, you know, maybe 600% faster, but all of these other areas equally important are only getting 0.7% better. And to be able to scale improvement, I think, what does Kevin Kelly from Wired call it? I'm a protopian. <laughs> I'm not a utopian. I just like to see the world get 1% better someday. I'm not sure if this is in line with what you're talking about, but one of the things, and in a certain sense, never minds in that era of music was really the beginning of this, but the the record labels, the powers that be, uh, companies and brands have gotten really good at portioning off the counterculture of being like, Hey, here's your, here's your revolution, you know? And, and and obviously things have only continued to go in that direction. And now we're seeing uh, a lot of corporate hijacking of like woke culture, for example. And, you know, the, you know, in my sort of inward contemplation period, I started writing my thoughts on, 
my experience called the commodification of dissent. And, you know, in the biggest scale, it's not like you were saying, an op. But when you gave someone who believed in all these tiny, fragile, unique, millions of little beautiful things that I feel Kurt Cobain loved. They were these soft, fragile, you know, like this idea of house parties rather than the necessity of shared, sometimes multi-generational housing in urban environments that everyone divides the tasks and maybe it's an anarchy house, but they, in their free time, make these beautiful things. Like the fall could make a recording, you know, one take, all live, and it was just searingly true. And that's what people were hearing. And when you have you know, Butch Vig, he's like, okay, we're going to gate the snare drum to tape. We're going to, you know, and okay, now turn up the authenticity. Give me the long tail. What are you going to get? You're going to get, you're going to get, I mean, you're going to get rape me from uh, in utero, in my opinion. And that being a logical response. And that was Nirvana's internal reaction to the album that they had just made. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm guessing I, you know, you know, I haven't seen anyone from that camp since CMJ yeah. of 1993 when we all went to go see the Boredoms play at Club USA. Um, and that was, it was weird in 1990, in the fall of 93. Everybody was mad. But they're still, you know, he's like, have you heard this raincoats bootleg? It's like, oh. I'm way far more far removed from him than you are, but he was clearly not comfortable with what was happening around it, but they were almost too big to fail at that point. I mean, in utero was still a massive success. Yeah, I mean, really coming up with the, by any means necessary, I don't care if he can't find his shoes, take him to a mall, get a pair of sneakers, get yeah. him to sound check. I don't, you know what? We'll have someone deliver an intelligent, bright light, even, you know, whatever. I'm talking like, you know, earthling to earthling, he knew, you know, he knew. I mean, everybody, everybody to a degree knew completely unsustainable. It's just like, you know, it may look like it's working and it may work tonight, but there's going to be a night where it doesn't. And that is, and I think, you know, like the power of when, like when to be, and, you know, so young, like, I mean, my level of self-awareness, I was making the, you know, the three-way when I was 27. I was like on to my third career suicide. Is I, I mean, but again, I internalized those feelings. I explored them in the most chordal, lyrical, you know, like, how can we emote this color? In what shape did the, did the lilies emerge from that moment of alternative rock of, of major label feeding frenzies? Well, and so when, you know, there were bands being signed to the biggest majors, they were getting $500,000 non-recoupable signing bonuses. At the peak of that, we made a record for $8,000, we all, I was working on the loading dock of a genetics company in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Genzyme. This was even in the wake of the sire? The, being induced, having our contract. I mean, literally one, one week we're, we're, we're going and having drinks with our friend, Paul, who had produced Hole and Radiohead. And he's talking about like-minded, like, okay, this is a really cool adventure. You know, you can take this, you can get more R&B, you know, Better Can't Make Your Life Better could be something to the next week getting a call from Risa Morley, the, the, the A&R genius who basically convinced Seymour Stein to sign Aphex Twin for the selected ambient works. I mean, in a sense, it's like, oh, this is great. And then in a sense of like, oh no, we're not that. He's that. He, he knows he is already inclusive. 
He can show up and do his show. We've just begun to figure this out. And that was in 1996. We, you know, basically for the third time attempted to grow. And in 18 months, we had found something we didn't, we weren't signed to that record. We were signed to this tiny British company for an $8,000 record and another $8,000 record. And, you know, basically after the Nanny Manhattan license for the British Levi's corduroy ad, and now they're saying, oh, you're this highly visible band. It's like, but two of the players have left. It's so toxic. They can't pay rent. They're like, well, what if we just ignored this other option on the Shea record and you signed directly to Sire? And I'm thinking like, this is the guy who signed Madonna from his hospital bed. How do I not fit into this equation? Like, and and there was this moment where we were attempting to like collaborate on producers. And, you know, I was saying, well, honestly, I would, I said, I was feeling much more, because this is the era of, you know, Autecker, Aphex Twin, Window Lickers New. I'm like, I want to, I want to explore our, I want to keep going into our blue chords. I'm I'm ready to maybe even work with, you know, some like kind of primitive sampling and really get something bang and live. And I was like throwing out like, you know, we mixed at the looking glass and Philip glass was there. His producer, Kurt's really smart. And, you know, he's like, well, who would you like to produce the record? And I was I'm like, sure that's what Seymour Stein wants to hear is, yeah, is produce the uh, we want Philip like, glass to produce us. Well, uh-huh. And, then he said, you know who's really amazing that would do a great record. And I feel that your, your, your two energies would be super compatible. Andy Paley. And I'm like, Andy Paley, the guy who's been working with Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, like in a hospital environment? What do you say? I'm like, what about Lenny Kay? Like Patty Smith's guitar player would make us sound real. And he's like, Lenny Kay is not a producer. What and about like, Rick Ocasek? That worked. Oh, yeah, Rick Ocasek. Oh, that would have been, wow. Wow. And, you know, so basically the, okay, if you work with Andy and he can vet your mental well-being, I'm like, what, that I don't rhyme? That he would check me from... Hey, Kurt, these lines don't rhyme. Wait, so he sized you up and he saw like Brian Wilson in you? Is that what he's getting at here? I think he saw that level of mental. I think he saw someone who's great, but needed to be, you know. Needed to be babysat. Or something. And I'm like, I am not that great, man. This is all just like dumb luck. And, you know, a mom and dad who basically didn't call the cops when they should have. They just like, Kurt, don't do that. That is dangerous. You're lucky you didn't hurt yourself or someone else. Remember this moment. And I did. And I stopped doing more and more dangerous stuff and did weirder and weirder stuff. Um, But that was, I mean, that was about as much as it, you know, and we stayed in our own little, you know, bubble and the same people basically, but minus a couple of key people. Do you feel like you would have sold out, you know, as, as they called oh, it back then, if you knew absolutely. how to? If we had, and I just want to say, if we had an organization, we had no management company, we had no business plan. We didn't even know how much everyone's rents were. Like it was it was Chumbawamba level like, whoa, you guys are just like a rolling commune or something. In spite of everything, Chumbawamba hit it. Hit it. They, isn't that insane? I know. And that's what I'm, but feel me, all of my models made Seymour do this. No! And I love that he most definitely tried, but within his arsenal, he's like, well... I think Nile Rogers would throw you out in about 20 minutes. And, you know, he's just going down the like, okay, somebody. He's like, yeah, 
I remember after six days of like click tracks and scratch guitars, Andy Paley got a vocal out of Brian Wilson. I'm like, I've been at that album in four days. You're talking about $600,000, one song, $600,000, and you shelved it. I'm like, oh, and so, I mean, and honestly, we were a little bit closer to, I don't know, like the original Broadway cast of Grease. I mean, we're so not, we're not the replacements or degeneration. We weren't any of that kind of rock and roll, but in like a kind of early Roxy music sort of way, very rock and roll, except like you have a clarinet. It's like, oh yeah, Andy. The disconnect from for, for me as somebody being way on the outside of all this and, and, and looking at it is that on the face of it, in a lot of ways, the Lily is worth the time and have continued to be a pop band. So oh, for sure. it shouldn't have been that hard to break through. I think that um, as far as what people's ears were recognizing as pop between 1996 and 2000, when at the end of the fourth financial quarter of 1999, East-West Electra defunded that iteration of Sire. They didn't fire Seymour. They took his operating budget away and everybody got form letters. Everybody was already well into like rap rock by that point. But that's the thing is the ears were, you know, I I mean, we, the three-way came out in the era of like Britney Spears hit me one more time. Like, and the... You know, the like the response of people for better can't make your life better or for the three way, they were just so like, they're like, thank you for doing this. Like, thank you. Like, it's like the song comes on a radio station and it's like they've changed the channel. They're, and it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing it for the approval rather than to be recognized as someone who sees the people of earth in process. Like we're in a huge learning process as a species. We are going from our, you know, tweens and teens into young adulthood right now. And that was 25 years ago. And I think there is a a click of marketing people who went all into the digital persuasion who said, you know what? If they don't have good parents, that's their problem. If they don't have self-control, that's not our job. And so everything all at once, reality or unreality, unfact-checked, unvetted information sort of worked, worked for us because nothing after us was like us. And so mm-hmm. us attempting to reach people like kind of death urgently, sincerely, like not desperate, but there was definitely, I would go to like my 80% and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to need to like recover. And then I go to like 90 and then I'd be like, okay, you really got, you know, you're going to need to do a sharp turn. And I go to hundred and then I, I try to do the sharp turn and uh, no, you're like, Oh, you're, you're out. You're, you're out of fuel, my friend. And I think that you can sense that because these are very, very, you know, we would record records for basically what people would sound check. I mean, literally. Uh, And even when we would come into a town and, you know, People would come and, you know, we would play to 300 people. And by the the next Friday, the people at the label is like, you've sold 600 records here. They all went out and bought it and they told someone to buy it. Like, how is this not working? And again, like DGC throwing everything at infrastructure wise, 
we have, you know, Seymour had no infrastructure. I mean, Seymour, Seymour, but he doesn't, he wasn't, he was, he was, he was operating in an office. He had one person when they said, okay, we're going to start this, you know, this imprint, this not, not sire called primary. They went, you know, sure. Maybe they could have hired two more people and like maybe said, hey, you guys got some, uh, you know, frayed knots here. We're going to have to tighten your edges a bit. But we weren't, you know, there was no contract to do that. And they were just like, well, maybe this will work, but maybe it won't. And so I feel like being able to just be this very sincere, you know, you know, and now we're even like more honest, like we, you know, we were not part of a UK or a US scene, though we are equally nourished by both, you know, we're equally, you know, it's like without some of those thrill jockey and drag city records, without some of the, you know, what, you know, Gerard and Matador were attempting to do, you know, what Sub Pop wanted to do um, and did do, but, but, but with Nevermind, it was like, it's, it's hard to remember. Like these were just kids. I remember in like, whatever, 54 AD, Nero became Caesar at the age of 16 in 64 AD, when Rome burned, he came back 35 miles from his palace, was pouring water, working with the fire department. He was 26. That, you know, scrambles me a bit, but that's the kind of like potential. I was like, yeah, you know, maybe if we just get into the right circumstances, And yeah, like, and we were constantly attempting to organize and clarify and streamline. And I don't think art really needs artists to do the critical thinking. I think they're like, get your process, get your setup, document the thoughts. Let me feel these phone calls. Don't stop mid lyric to go and talk to your booking agent, you know, ad person, you know, don't run copy. And that's what, you know, that's the model of Brian Epstein. He, he created these layers around each of the member of the Beatles. Sure. But it's 2021 and that probably exists for five people now. Uh, True. No, 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 no. But there are companies whose CEOs and presidents are now leading the that what you would see the John and Ringo and Paul and a band that is at the level that you are at kind of needs to do everything. I mean, I assume when I see your Twitter account, I assume that's you. Yeah. No, that's me. In order to function and make art in the world, like you do have to be very much in tune with all the infrastructural questions. Sure. And and you know, honestly, I'm going to probably reveal a little too much. I've always believed in just in maybe in a small and regional way that there is there is much more function in as far as like mental health and you know social well being by having everyone a little bit more musical than these. Zeppelin, Beatles, Stones. I feel that that was such a new, you know, why was Ike Turner such an angry guy? He wasn't even credited on Rocket 88 when it came out. You know, like, and that is no reason for violence. There were other things going on with Ike Turner. No, 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 no. But here's the thing. We got a lot of balls moved way down the field, but some... Some people who, you know, accident of birth, luck, were the ones that took it and created the fortunes of the industry, which, yeah, by 2001, 
it was EDM. You know, it was websites and everything has a genre. And now you can be a superstar in your genre. And sure, that's the great leveler. You know, what's the what's the funny in the future? Everyone will be famous to 15 people. Fragmentation. Yes. And I feel that that fragmentation on a level of, you know, the FCC up until the end of the 80s used to actually check if information being broadcast was factual. Luckily enough, removing that responsibility from the FCC got things a little weird. But when you could have non-fact-based information after the Telecommunications Act, where if I wanted to buy every radio station, newspaper, I can do it. Fragmentation of objective truth. Yeah. And now we are seeing... We are seeing, we are seeing that commodification process. Fragmentation of reality. Well, you know, if you wanted to say, I can fly and you went to the top of, are you in? I'm in New York. Oh, you're in New York. So you went to the top of the Chrysler building and you're like, time to fly from the top of the Chrysler building. Reality is that trip at terminal velocity. I could see you and you say, this is my time to fly. And I'm like, my friend, let us get jumpsuits or parachutes or hang gliders. But the reality is you're only going to fly for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's not going to be long enough to enjoy the ride. In one direction. It's a one It's a one way. It's like the Donald Duck trick. Daffy Duck. I got to say, I think about that one a lot. That is, that's a, and again, if you think of the dangers, those Warner Brothers animators getting high in the back lot, smoking pot, rolling, filming themselves, hitting each other with brooms and rolling. Buster Keaton may have been the... Sure. Who, I, who's the most physically adroit... He was the Jackie, Jackie Chan of his day, they say. Those animators were the... God, like, is there a better version of Jackass or is Jackass what we got? Uh, uh, Jackass is they, the is sort of the definitive people beating the shit out of each other. Okay. So, like, imagine, like, a literary, little more fluid Jackass. That was your Warner's animators. Totally unbound. And, yeah, through, you know, they wouldn't have done that, you know, belting single malt scotch. No, it was because they believed they could fly. And then roll on the ground. Over the course of the Lily's long and long, long and diverse career, what is your equivalent? You sucking career. <laughs> what is your equivalent of hitting each other over the head with mallets? Um, attempting to make a record in our 20s that sounded like real artists in their 50s. And that was the three-way. And we hurt each other and we hurt feelings and we went over budget and two months later, I had to move in with a friend. And I mean, like with a family. So yeah, that was the crazy maker. Um, but it's like, like again, luckily for me, you know, I'm more like, uh, you know, Lee Dorsey working in a coal mine guy. Yeah. So I'm more, you know, man, I, you know, when I was six, I thought Ray Charles was like a member of our family because there were records all around. And I was like, oh, yeah. And that level and being aware of that level of and what Ray Charles did helping. I mean, the amount of assists. I mean, the only other person that has probably done more for music and musicians, maybe Quincy Jones, but they are rivaled in the people who translated the the ceremony the the ritual and the dance of cr- creation with each other um and i th- it, yeah that was the you know that was you really we really needed to just you know go and like go to Arkansas or go to Alabama or go to Tennessee and just every Sunday walk by every church until we heard it. And then we say, Hey, you know, we're lilies. We, we love what you do. Would you make music with us? I, and it's like, paid attention to the case you're making. They're like, what is this? And I was like, it's our song. That would have, 
that would have been, I think, really cool because we would have just been like, do we got it or do we got it? And here's all these, you know, 50, 60, 70-year-old tambourine, like, yeah. And that wouldn't have hurt us, but we would have used the tools of culture and civilization and employed the first step, which is humility. And just rather than attempting to be our own stunt doubles, which is painful. In the case of the three-way, though, how close did you get to where you were trying to go? Four-fifths. Okay. I mean, like, I, I you know, I asked from the standpoint of, like, I mean, I hopefully no, they didn't, they didn't no, ruin we, their brains we, or ruin their lives too much. But, like, I'm really glad we have Looney Tunes. Yes. Me too. Exactly. And, you know, honestly, it was just one flavor of, oh, Interesting. It's not going to hit. It's not going to make you happy, but it is interesting. And every other version other than, wow, this is really going to resonate with people. Everyone's going to get something that they want. I mean, and what if we did make that record and then got a form letter dropping us, you know, seven months later, which is what was going to happen. You know, that part of the day. So in a way, making something ephemeral and beautiful, and then there's no commitment. No, you know, maybe not the worst of things. Now, what are there people, you know, in like houses on the hills with, you know, private school tuitions is like, yeah, I was, I was doing the reading and tutoring, you know, or I'm like, got lots of free time, you know, don't have to go out on, you know, 200 sold out stadium dates. I can just sit here and we can bang through, you know, what Greek mythology, that's so overplayed. Let's travel to the Pacific Rim, shall we? Remember your notes and, you know, and it's good. And, you know, I have lots of regrets, but that everybody was so adaptive to their own detriment. Like everyone got a little selfless at one point or another. And that's, you know, like that, I mean, maybe it's a hundred percent of what it was meant to be. And yeah, four fifths of what I had hoped to give them to be able to give listeners. But you know, what's, what's that? A seven? <laughs> ah, nice, sexy seven. I, I don't think a lot of people get four fifths most of the time. So I, I think four fifths is a oh. success. Oh, okay. And that's what I was going to say. And I think when people, they're like, oh my God, you did it. And it's like, once, you know, it's, I, this is a great trick, but uh, this may be it. I don't think anyone's coming with the uh, hang glider. And I'm about to go off the top of the Chrysler building. So, you know, but it was, I mean, you know, honestly, I learned so much about what not to do with people and how not to overextend, but like be healthy. I mean, healthier creatively, like make more, make more mistakes, laugh at those mistakes, make more, then make more. So yeah, like that's like basically, and, and, you know, and we all get frustrated with ourselves and frustrated with our environments. And I find myself writing it down a lot. And that's my notebook over there. And I was like, I, my morning bitch fest getting pretty poetic the last 20 years. So, I mean, I'm like, and a lot of the things that, you know, were, Forces beyond our control, like you're saying, not people even getting four fifths, like being an 80% complete. Maybe they needed to let go of their apartment. Maybe they needed to, you know, sell their car and buy a bike. If you really want to get as close as you can, you need to sacrifice. You need to exchange what you got too much of for what you desperately need. And we did that. But it, I mean, that's what we did. We just took what we had and we attempted to transform it all the way into something. So, and, you know, lucky to have that opportunity because, yeah, the next record that really knocked my socks off was, you know, Pro Tools, 888, A to D converter, you know, the strokes. Is this it? That was the first cohesive thing in like a year. And, you know, and then everything 
bent towards that. So incredible. 